This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Nate Staniforth discusses his new book, Here is Real Magic, A Magician's Search for Wonder in the Modern World. Then PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot looks at 2017's best-selling books. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD BookScan. And this week, the hardcover nonfiction list is definitely the one that's uh, got the most going on. Tell us about that number one. So we talked about Fire and Fury, Michael Wolf's book on the Trump administration last week. Uh, people were buying uh, books online before the actual physical copies were available. So the numbers didn't quite reflect the number of books sold. And in this week's, um, they, they really have come up quite a bit now that the books are available. And uh, they are up to uh, uh, just over 190,000 copies wow. just this week. So uh, it's it's coming back. It'll keep selling, uh, I'm sure, for the next couple of weeks. We reported they went to print with uh, 600,000, 700,000 copies. Something like that. So it was a pretty big number, uh, and they're about 200,000 of the way there. So, um, And that's uh, definitely the biggest book. The next one we have is... When the scientific secrets of perfect timing by Daniel Pink. This is at number two. Pink, his previous book is to sell a human should change many people's understanding of timing with this book, which provides insights from little known scientific studies in an accessible way. We talk about why uh, adolescents who start school before eight uh, are at an academic disadvantage and why there are more complications from anesthesia in the afternoon when, when undergoing anesthesia in the afternoon. We say that by the book's end, readers will be thinking much more carefully about how they divide up their days and organize their routines. And then we have another kind of science. One, a meteorologist, uh, uh, Ginger Z, ABC News chief meteorologist, uh, has a book called Natural Disaster, I Cover Them, I Am One. So she talks about covering great disasters and, and the country as she reports on them, but also about her own battle with uh, with depression. Uh, and she talks about her romances that she describes as from misguided to dangerous. And that book is at number 15 on the bestseller list. Well, there's uh, not a ton happening over on uh, hardcover fiction, um, but we do have some very exciting titles. At number five, mm -hmm. The Immortalists by Chloe Benjamin. We gave this a starred review. It said in her second novel, Benjamin constructs an imaginative and satisfying family saga. And uh, in, it starts in 1969, in which four uh, 
rambunctious siblings visit a psychic who predicts the date that each of them will die. And then it follows how each of them deals with the news of their expiration dates. Uh, We say that the author has written a cleverly structured novel steeped in Jewish lore and the history of four decades of American life. The four gold siblings are wonderful creations and in Benjamin's expert hands, their story becomes a moving meditation on fate, faith, and the family ties that both hurt and heal. And then uh, down at number eight, another starred review. This is for The Wife Between Us by Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pekkanen. And uh, we say that Hendricks, uh, who spent more than 20 years as a book editor, um, joins forces with Pekkanen, who's an author, to create a jaw-dropping psychological thriller uh, with an unreliable narrator uh, who is obsessed with her ex-husband's fiance and on the verge of becoming unhinged. Uh, we say this is not an, another eye-rolling story about the jealous ex-wife stalking her replacement, as readers will discover as Vanessa's motivations are revealed. And some unforgettable twists lead to shocking revelations all the way through the epilogue. So that's definitely right. one to check right. out for the thriller yeah. fans. Just below that at number nine, Blood Fury, Black Dagger Legacy Book 3 by J.R. Ward. Uh, These are always on the bestseller list, extremely popular paranormal romances. Uh, We say that this one is considerably toned down compared to earlier books, uh, but readers will still be satisfied. Um, This uh, continues the story of the Black Dagger Brotherhood. Uh, which is training to uh, fight a, an existential war against the lessening society. And we say that of the, the two romances in this entry, um, the, the one that takes center stage is the more emotionally intense, but there's a secondary love story that may be more poignant, and that Ward's duo of redemptive and complementary romances is engrossing and surprisingly tender. And finally, down at number 17, Operator Down by Brad Taylor. This is the 12th book in the Pike Logan thriller series. We say that bestseller Taylor excels at quality action scenes, but getting there can be kind of a chore. Um, This one starts out as a surveillance job that takes a deadly turn after a coup in an African kingdom where diamonds are involved. We say that uh, Pike, uh, the series protagonist, has been partially tamed by his love interest, Jennifer, but he's still quite happy to go off on his own when he's needed, much to the dismay of his boss and much to the delight of his fans, who are sure to relish this entry despite the slow spots. And uh, that's what we've got on Hardcover Fiction. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Nate Staniforth tells us how he lost wonder and found it again. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Peter Manceau, author of The Apparitionists, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Nate Staniforth on the line. His new book is Here is Real Magic, A Magician's Search for Wonder in the Modern World. Nate, so glad you could join us. Thank you very much for having me on. So you're a stage magician. You've got a show on Discovery called Breaking Magic. And at one point, you lost touch with the reason why you became a magician in the first place. What was that reason? What got you started on this path of magic as a career? You know, I even before I knew about magic tricks, I loved the experience of magic. You know, I remember my parents once took me out to see a meteor shower. And, and that was easily the most amazing thing I had ever seen. And I just, you know, I love that, that sense of being astonished by something. And then later when I discovered magic tricks, I, it, the, it was like, it was like this jolt of electricity because I realized that you can, 
you can create that experience for other people with with something as simple as you know making a coin disappear or a card trick and and so my interest in magic from the beginning has been that i'm not I'm not a natural performer. I don't like show business. I'm not, there's none of the laser beams or smoke machines or, or tight leather pants that I think people sometimes associate with magic. I love that moment of wonder. That's, that's what I'm trying to do as a magician. And then somehow that lost its spark for you. How, how did that happen? Yeah, well, I think, I suspect that most jobs conceal you know, beneath this veneer of glamour and, and allure from the outside, a, a sort of grinding day-to-day wear and tear on the inside, right? You know, you, you I think it's, you know, in architecture or entertainment or music or, or journalism, it looks great on the outside. And then once you're in it, um, it's, it's maybe not what you thought it would be. Hmm. I started touring when I was 22 years old. And, and, you know, you get into magic because you love magic, but... I was on the road 100 days a year, 150 days a year, um, and and so much of the job is traveling or marketing or or just you know trying to run a business and and I found that I had very little in my day that was actually about magic. It was all it was it was all all of my time was spent in the the me- mechanics of being a magician, and and I just became disillusioned with the whole process. So uh, about how old were you when, when this had happened? And then when you decided to embark on this trip, which we'll talk about in, in just a bit. Yeah, I was 26 years old, which is, <laughs> which is pretty young for a midlife <laughs> crisis, right? Like I, there was one night um, I was on stage in Milwaukee, and, and I just left in the middle of the show. I just stopped, and I said, good night, I'm done. And I walked off stage. And I went back to my hotel room thinking that, you know, maybe this is it. Maybe, maybe this great adventure is over and, and I'm going to become a gardener or, you know, work at Starbucks or something because I just, I, I couldn't reconcile the reality of, of doing this thing that I thought I loved with, with the reality of, um, not actually loving it anymore. So where did that take you? You you were in Milwaukee and then you ended up in India. Tell us tell us a little bit about that that trip that you embarked on and what led you to think that maybe travel was the way to get the spark back. So uh, let me start by saying this. On tour, like you can only play so much Angry Birds before <laughs> you know, like on airplanes or in airports or at the venue or in the hotel, there's just a lot of downtime. So you end up reading a lot of books. And on the, the leg of the tour where, you know, that passed through Milwaukee, I just happened to be reading. It was just blind coincidence. I happened to be reading this book on traditional Indian street magic. And so when I went back to the hotel that night after the show, I I was looking through this book and, and I started dreaming of this adventure where I would sort of forget everything I knew about being a professional magician and and try to, you know, dream it all up again. And so, you know, every culture in the world has its own tradition of magic that goes back thousands of years. So I could have gone anywhere, but I just happened to be reading a book about Indian magic. So that's where I went. So uh, it just is just kind of happenstance. You're in your hotel room reading this book, and you go to India. How, how did you know where to go, and and where did you go? Tell us about that trip. Yeah, I didn't really have a plan. Um, I because you know part 
you know, let me say it this way. My mission was in my mind, I wanted to put myself back in the audience. I wanted to go see a tradition of magic that was unlike my own and, and try to be amazed. So I was going to look for snake charmers and street performers and traditional Indian magicians, right? I, I wasn't looking for magic tricks. I was looking for the experience of being amazed. What I found, you know, and I found all of those things and they were amazing, but, but the discovery that I made was that the process of, of traveling and searching for wonder was far more amazing than any of the, the magicians that I saw. Um, you know, the thing that magic and travel have in common is they can both deliver this, this sort of cataclysmic death blow to the, you know, your certainty of, of, you know, how the world works. And, and for me, that was, that was a real revelation that, that moving myself so far out of my comfort zone, um, forced me to pay attention and, and see things that maybe I would have missed otherwise. So I, I didn't really have a plan. I knew that I was going to work my way across the country from east to west by train. And I just made it up along the way as I went. I, I did want to find some of the magicians that I had read about in the book. And so I was working my way towards New Delhi with the intention of, of meeting up with them at some point. But it was, it was, it was an adventure in the real sense of the word because I didn't, I wasn't following an itinerary. I was just sort of wandering and, and seeing where the trip led me. At what point in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, you end up in what is a really um, poor neighborhood, either part of New Delhi or outside of New Delhi, in the city outside of New Delhi, where there were a lot of, uh, it was almost like a market or someplace or, or, or an outdoor, uh, a large outdoor area. Can, can you describe that for us? Tell us about that, what the feeling was like. Well, so the the magicians that I w- were trying to find, you know, that I read about in the book, um, had had been forced to settle in this slum known as Shadapur Depot. And I, you know, I knew that I wanted to find them, but I, I didn't know how to do it. So I, I sent an email to the author of the book and said, you know, please, have you kept in touch with any of the magicians that, that you wrote about? And so I had this agreement. I was supposed to, to be on a particular corner at a particular time, but that was it. And so I, you know, I got to the, the edge of the slum and it was just, it, it looked like the end of the world. I, you know, I grew up in Iowa and, and shot up her depot, this neighborhood in, in New Delhi was just about as far from that as I could possibly get. And it was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. There were open sewers. And, and I mean, it looked like the whole place had been bombed. There was rubble and garbage piled everywhere and then carved throughout the ruins was this community. And, and the patriarch of this tribe of magicians uh, met me on the corner and and led me through this maze of of burnt out buildings and collapsing ruins to to his home and I spent the rest of the day talking with this ancient clan of magicians who've passed their secrets down from you know father to son for three thousand years and and it was, yeah, I, I saw things that day that I will never forget. But, but the most amazing thing was the, the sense of welcome and hospitality. You know, we had nothing in common except for magic, but, but that was enough. That sounds worthy of a book all on its own. I, what an incredible experience. How did you process that? How did you encompass that while you were there and, and afterwards? I, I don't know that I, I have processed it. You know, I think... 
one of the ideas that I, I try to explore in the book is that when when you have an experience that stretches your understanding of the world so much, so it, it's hard for that understanding to shrink back down to normal size. Uh, I I have never been the same since I went to Shadowford Depot. I think about it every day. Hmm. I think about it every day. That trip was in 2009, and every single day since then, I've thought about Shadowford Depot because it was just it. I mean, there are a lot of things to say about it, and and some of them are in the book, so I don't want to be redundant. But but I will say that it was incredible to see how this community of people um, lived and and even thrived in conditions that seemed from the outside as, as you know, just, just terrible. And, and, um, you know, how could you possibly live in that environment? But, you know, uh, the, the leader of the tribe had had some success, um, in his career as a magician. And he used all of the money that he had earned to wire his home in the middle of the slum with internet access. And, <laughs> and he had a computer there and it was, you know, it was an early basic computer, but the, the kids from the neighborhood would come over and they would learn about, you know, he, he explained to me that he had learned to speak English on the radio by listening to the radio, but the, his computer was, was far better because they could also learn about biology and evolution. And, and it was it, seeing, seeing the ways in which they, you know, transcended and they rose above their circumstances was just, it was, it was staggering. And, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know what else to say about it. I mean, it, 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 I feel like the only thing I know now is that I don't know anything for certain. Because if, if that sort of teeming, vibrant life can, can live in a place like that, then that, you know, invalidates everything I thought I knew about, about how, how humanity works. So you'd mentioned that they were forced to live here and move here together. Why is that? Was, was, was this a culture that looked down on magicians or looked down on street performers in general? Or was it just that street performers of all types didn't make enough money to, to live well? The way they explained it to me was this, that, that street performing used to be embraced by the culture. And, and so, you know, their tribe would travel around there was a, they for thousands of years were a nomadic people who would move from village to village and and do the show and then move on um the way they explained it to me was that sometime in the 70s um the the cultural attitudes towards street performing changed and some of the laws around street performing changed and it made them made it, made it much harder for them to make a living and so they were faced with the decision of abandoning their craft and each sort of seeking employment in the modern world um, or staying together as a family and trying to make it work together as a tribe in the in the slum and they chose the the latter and you know it 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 was really remarkable to see them function together as this you know really successful you know, it, it sounds strange to say that because because the living conditions were terrible, but they had found a way to to really, um, you know, thrive. And have you seen? You know, we talk about the changes there in your time as a performer. Have have you seen the the way the audience or or the presentations have changed for magicians? I think that's hard for me to answer accurately because I the. You know, I'm better now than I was when I started 
20 years ago or, or whatever it was. And so, uh, you know, I see the change that comes from just learning how to handle an audience. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I don't know how, how an audience would have um, differed, you know, between 20 years ago and now. I will say that, you know, our culture has a very strange relationship with magic. And I think it's, I think it's telling that, you know, Job Bluth from Arrested Development is sort of a, the personification of the American attitude towards magic. Here's this sort of buffoonish character who's the butt of every joke in the show. And, and I think that's how, I think that's how most people think about magic. But it's strange as a stage performer because you, you're aware of that. But every night on stage, I see people in the audience maybe come in and start the show with their arms crossed and, and they're sort of, I don't know if skeptical is the right word, but maybe cynical is the right word about the whole process. And then over the course of the show, they just sort of melt and unfold. And, you know, that I think any magician in the world will tell you that that is, is really a, re- a rewarding part of the job, seeing a room full of, of um, cynical and disengaged people just sort of become unified into this, you know, collective group of of, uh, people united in in this moment of astonishment and joy. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Join us for a lively conversation about kids and teens audio on January 25th at the Random House Cafe Auditorium in New York. You'll hear from Scholastic, Audible, Panoply, and Disney with a Q&A to follow. This breakfast panel is sponsored by Publishers Weekly and the Bologna Children's Book Fair. Find out more at publishersweekly.com slash gkc18series. That's publishersweekly.com slash gkc18series. We'll see you there. Welcome back. We're talking with Nate Staniforth, author of Here is Real Magic. So is that the real magic that you're talking about in the title of your book, the, the magic of connection and of wonder? Yeah, there are a couple things going on with the title. But but that's certainly part of it, that as a magician, you get to see a side of humanity that is normally kept very private. I don't know if it's a John Lennon line or if he stole it from T.S. Eliot, but there's that line about putting on the face to meet the faces that you meet. And we all sort of do that all the time. We're all performing for each other on some level when we choose the Ramones t-shirt over the suit or the thick glasses over the contact lenses, you know, and, and the words we use and the way we carry ourselves. And, and we're all sort of broadcasting to the world the way we want the world to see us. And, and one of the really special things about a moment of impossibility is that it makes you forget to be cool for a moment. All of that performativity drops away. And for a moment, there's this, this unguarded, unaffected uh, moment of just connection and you know, I feel like magicians get to see people at their very best. And I wish everybody could, I wish everybody could see that at least once. Who are some of the performers who have inspired you both when you were getting started? And uh, perhaps if you can tell us about some of the people that you met in India as well. Growing up as a magician in Ames, Iowa, um, before YouTube was invented was, was um, very isolated because you know, we didn't have a lot of magicians coming through on tour and the only access to the world of magic I had was in books from the library. So my first heroes were the great masters of, of magic, you know, in the past. I, I read everything I could find about Houdini 
because, you know, for, for a 10 year old boy learning about Houdini's story is very close to real magic on its own because as a 10 year old, he just decided that he was going to become the greatest magician in the world. And he ran away from home as a 10 year old joined the circus and started performing and sent money back to his mom to help with the, the younger children. And I, I was really, um, I was really taken with his sense of, um, just willpower, like deciding what he wanted to do and then and fighting to make it happen. And, you know, as I got older and had access to other magicians, I, I became aware that I, I was, I was lucky to grow up in Iowa because when you, when you see other magicians, it's easy to become influenced by them or to try to copy them. And I really liked that I grew up um, away from that world because I had to invent everything you know, you can, you can find technique in, in books, but in terms of aesthetics or how that experience should feel, I had to come up with a lot of that on my own, which is something that, that has served me well in the years since. And how about some of the folks who you met in New Delhi, uh, who, who sort of helped to rekindle that spark for you? Well, the, the, I mean, I, the, the leader of that tribe right now is a man named Ishamuddin Khan and, and he's the man who used his success to wire his home with internet access. And I, I was, I was impressed with him for so many reasons. He's a, a world-class magician, but you know, he's also, um, by all appearances, a, an excellent father and a, a, a good member of his community. And I just, I, I like the way that, that he welcomed me so openly and brought me into his world and, and then showed me magic that I will remember for the rest of my life, you know, things I could not possibly explain. Let's talk about art and what happens when you lose that sense of being inspired. I think that everyone who's ever created art has had those moments where you have to try to figure out whether to give up and walk away, clear your head, just do something workmanlike and sort it out later. How did that affect your sense of yourself as an artist um, and and of what was possible for you? You know, I think we're all really good at um, becoming used to things, making things normal. And I think as an artist, that's dangerous because, um, you know, especially with magic, you, you get into magic because you love that that spark and that fire. And that is, that is the very heart of the profession, right? That's what you're trying to give to other people. So when that dies, you, you have nothing left. One of the, the really liberating uh, things about this book for me was that so much of my personal identity is tied up with being a magician. And I wondered if that makes it actually harder to do the work, right? If it makes it harder to do good work as an artist, if, if you're so focused on, being that kind of artist in your own mind. And, and the book was a, it was a chance to solve new problems and, and, you know, writing is just every bit as hard as magic, but, but it's hard in different ways. And I thought, Oh, it's nice to not have to do the impossible that I'm glad to have a break from that. And, you know, now being on the other side of it, I, I can look at my own work as a magician in a new way as well. What was the writing process like for you? When I, when I was in India, I had this sense that I felt like I had been struck by lightning and I needed to, I needed to ground it somehow. And I, I didn't know if I could do it as a magician. I felt like I had this thing that I needed to, to communicate. 
and I just, I didn't know if, if card tricks were, if they could carry the, the weight of this thing that felt so important to share. And so when I came back from India, I, st- I just decided, okay, I'm going to learn how to write now. One of the things that um, you learn as a magician pretty early on is how to get good at becoming better at things. Because, you know, like take the guitar, for instance, if, if you learn to become a guitar player, you can apply the same scales and chords to any number of different songs. But that's not true with magic. Every illusion is its own kind of discipline. Uh, if, you know, one illusion might use sleight of hand, the other might use memo- memory work or psychological, psychological subtleties. And, and so you end up having to learn a, a different skill set for each piece in your show. And so I just, you know, after I came home from India, I just decided, okay, 15 minutes a day, I'm going to write and it's going to be terrible, but I'm just going to start this process. And then pretty quickly, 15 minutes a day became half an hour a day and then 45 minutes a day and then an hour a day. And, and I just, I realized that I had something that I needed to say and I needed to, to learn how to say it in a way that people could, could connect with and relate to. So that, that same word document became the book it just changed and evolved and got edited and cut down and revised and expanded but um it you know it i just i think so many people well yeah i mean for for me it was that was the reason i felt like i had something i needed to say and maybe a book is the best way to say it what surprised you most about the process of writing or 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 anywhere along this journey it was it was very disorienting not having um, feedback in the process because for 20 years as a stage magician, I'd learned to read a room very carefully so I could sense what a silence meant or what a laugh meant or what you know a shout or, or I could I could read the audience very carefully and and adjust my approach to make sure that I was giving them the experience that I wanted to give them. And, and as a, as a writer, you know, I'd sit down and, you know, write what, 400 words, 500 words in a day. And, and it took a lot, a lot of time to get used to the fact that there was no one there at the end of the day to tell me if it worked or not. And, and, and that was really hard developing that, that, um, self-awareness about the work rather than, um, leaning into the audience for, for that, for that um, response. And, you know, I think I got there in the end, but, but it took a lot of time to learn that. And now the book's going to be out in the world and is going to find its audience, but it's too late for you to change anything in response. How is, how is that feeling for you? How are you anticipating that? I feel very exposed at the moment (laughs) because, you know, it, it took four years to write this book and now, you know, I was just on my own alone writing and and now it's out in the world and it's, this has been a pretty strange 48 hours for me, but I'm having a great time. I, I will say that, um, I coming from the world of, of, um, you know, stage performance and entertainment and television, the, this foray into the world of publishing and literature has been, I, I feel very, very fortunate and I'm, I'm glad to be here. There was one moment in the book, uh, if I recall where someone had, come up to you after seeing a performance uh, while you were in India and, and kind of berated you for, for, for what he thought was just, just pulling the wool over people's eyes and you're being 
maybe foolish or disingenuous to do so. What was your reaction to that? You know, I think this is a problem that that magicians have faced um, for a long time, and and in many different cultures. It's not just true in India, but but right now in India, um, there are figures who use um, sleight of hand magic, not to entertain or not not as art, right? Not to share anything with their um, audience, but to convince the audience that they possess actual divine supernatural power and should therefore be followed and treated as spiritual leaders. And, and the, you know, there's, there's a, a tremendous resistance against this, um, among various Indian rationalist societies and, and, you know, to their credit who are pushing back really hard on these charlatans who use sleight of hand magic to make it look to, to claim supernatural power. Um, uh, there are a number of magicians in India who have teamed up with um, rational societies to uh, debunk and disprove a lot of these charlatans. But, but I think that man was, um, I think he was coming at, at my performance from that perspective, that, that um, what, what you might perceive as art could also be perceived as just spreading superstition and, and to be careful. And meanwhile, in Western culture, I feel like we've seen a sort of resurgence in popular media of interest in magic and sleight of hand. You get uh, films like The Prestige and Now You See Me. Uh, you have your television show on Discovery. Um, what's what's that atmosphere been like for you as a stage performer? How does that influence the way your performances go and how your audiences respond? Yeah, it's it's an exciting time to be a magician. I think I think over the next five year, years we are going to see magic explode, and I say that because right now it feels like magic is where music, where popular music was in the fifties. Uh, you know, music changed forever because of the Fender Telecaster guitar. It was like the first cheap commercially available electric guitar that teenagers could afford. And so they just flooded the basements and garages of, of America and Europe. You know, Hendrix had one, Dylan had one, Janis Joplin had one, everyone had one. And, and it changed magic forever, or excuse me, it changed music forever. Magic's electric guitar moment was the David Blaine street magic special in 1997. And, you know, for the first time you didn't need a a million dollar lighting rig and and you know large illusions to perform on stage suddenly you just needed a deck of cards and an imagination the electric guitar was invented in the 30s and it took 20 years to sort of work its way into the popular culture and that's about the timeline that that magic is right now with with the blaine special so i think i think we are going to see people taking magic in so many different directions that you know it used to be there was only one successful, really famous magician at a time. And I think we're, we're well past that era. I think we're going to see um, people doing different things and taking it in different directions. And, uh, I'm, I'm certainly excited to be a part of that. We've been talking with Nate Staniforth, and you can find his book, Here is Real Magic, in stores right now. Nate, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on your show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot talks about 2017's best-selling books. Stay tuned. I'm Armistead Maupin, the author of the memoir Logical Family, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW Editorial Director Jim Milliot is here to tell us all about the best-selling books of 2017. Hello, Jim. Hello, Mark. Hello, Rose. Hello, Jim. Nice to have you back in the office with us after our our series of snow days and (laughs) holidays and all of that. Good to see your friendly face again. What have you brought us uh, in the way of news from last year? Well, before we all start forgetting about 2017, uh, I thought maybe... Ago. <laughs> we might do our final recap of the year before we start looking forward. Um, and there's nowhere better to start, right, than uh, what the most popular books were um, last year. And before we get to that, uh, naming names, shall we say, a couple things that stood out was that, the, once again, there was no huge blockbuster book. Right. I mean, last year, there was Cursed Child, four, 4 million copies, over 4 million copies sold. But yeah, that was a YA, so, you know, not, not an adult blockbuster, shall we say. And there wasn't again this year. Um, the two top selling titles in print, again, were Wonder, about 1.1 million sold units, and Milk and Honey, um, a little over a million sold. And those were the only two books last year that topped the million-dollar mm. mark. And you guys know your way around publishing. What do they both have in common? <laughs> they are backlist books. Uh-huh. Oh, right, right. So um, I think about half the, the NPD book scan list that we use was backlist, and the other half was originals. Um, and the Amazon top 10 print list, which we look at, was was fairly consistent with um, with, with the, the print, the NPD group, although they had... Well, a few more self-help titles, uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a F-U-C-K, Giraffes Can't Dance, and a couple other ones. But the book scan one, uh, just to go on a quick one, so, you know, he had Wonder and Milk and Honey, The Getaway, you know, uh, not a backlist, but just another one in the series of Jeff Kinney's Wimpy Kid, Mm -hmm. Origin by some guy named Dan Brown, (laughs) Um, You Are a Badass, which was was the fifth bestseller, and that's been around for at least two years, maybe a little longer, another solid backlist. A Man Called Oove was number six, Um, you know, came over kind of unknown a couple years ago, and Atrey's been publishing quite successfully since then. All the Places You'll Go. Right. You can never as, go wrong with, with a yep. Dr. Seuss. Yeah. Uh, I think it sells all its titles, uh, copies between May 1st and June 15th when uh, <laughs> college graduations are, are going on. Right. right. How, how did it become the gift of choice for, for college graduates? Is that just some incredibly savvy Dr. Seuss marketing? Uh, I guess we could attribute it to that. And then it's, I guess it now has become a tradition pretty much. It really so, has. Yeah. Um, so I don't I don't think I gave it to our kid, but <laughs> I, I didn't get one. <laughs> <laughs> and where have you gone? <laughs> right here at Publishers Weekly, of course. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and then uh, just to round out the top ten on the print side, Women in Cabin Ten, Ruth Ware, that was mm-hmm. new. The Rooster Bar and Camino Island were nine and ten. And they were new, but they also had something in common. John Grisham was the author. So um, you know, the, the top 10 was a list of, you know, a lot of backlists thrown in with some well-known um, commercial authors that right. have been on the top for a long time. And one thing this has got some publishers talking about, because you heard, home, heard so much about how important black 
blockbusters were. And it's like, well, you know, the, on the adult side, they haven't had one really since one of the E.L. James titles, which I can't remember which one off the top of my head, or the E.L. James series. That, you know, hey, you know, we can survive with, uh, with a lot of good selling books, but, you know, if you don't have to hit a home run with something that's automatically going to sell a million copies. Right. So, um, I think they take some heart in that. Although, you know, they all certainly would like to be the publisher that sure. has the blockbuster of the year. I mean, you still can, you know, manage a pretty, profitable business um, without some huge, huge bestsellers. Because another thing that's not directly tied to all of this, and it's coming out next <laughs> next week, or no, actually, I think about this week, we do a ranking of bestsellers by corporations. And the ones that are on there are always the big five. And there are very few others below the big five. I think Kensington had one, you know, Houghton Mifflin, Scholastic. Uh, they'll have some bestsellers. But it, it's it's really striking how much of that turf of a bestseller is taking over by the big five, which means that you know the, the publishers below that have survived by doing more modest, right, more sure. modest sellers. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, nobody's set up to the scale of Penguin Random, obviously. Yeah. So right. So it's all right. a little bit different. And as uh, your listeners know, and you know, uh, I think there is no definitive ebook list because Amazon. Uh, doesn't really like to disclose units. Um, we did get, and they usually always give us their, their top 10 or top 20 for the year. Um, and this year, their, their top-selling uh, Kindle title uh, was The Handmaid's Tale. Mm. Another backlist. But, right. <laughs> uh, with, a, know, with a TV tie-in. With a TV tie-in, and, uh, you know, and they did really well. But the thing that's striking um, here is that I think seven of their top 10 best-selling ebooks was um, from Amazon publishing units. So this, I think, sort of skews the list. Right. Um, it does, because I'm yeah. sure that they promote those books, that those are the books that are going to show up more often in there. Right. Have you considered also purchasing this kind of recommendation Algorithms. There's no reason they shouldn't weight that toward their own books, right? And uh, you know, they they have all the advertising space that they want on their own website. So I'm I'm not surprised to hear that, but I certainly agree that it makes it harder to sort of look at it as some kind of objective ranking of anything, right? And to your point, I mean, what sales they include are sales made through Kindle Unlimited, Amazon First Reads, and Prime Reading, which are all Amazon programs, right? Which not not every publisher, outside publisher, either has a chance to take part in, although they could be in Kindle Unlimited. Um, but some of the other ones is, is exclusive to Amazon right. authors. So I don't know what we're going to do about that. I don't know if we're going to use their list anymore. Uh, we do have the iTunes list, so maybe we'll use that. But that's a little inside mm, baseball. Right. So anyway, so you got a flavor for the, uh, the, the top... Um, the top books of the year. So if you haven't read them, go out. And we also, this week, we're looking at the hot categories. Now, in some ways, the hot categories reflect what the best books were. <laughs> right. Um, but, um, adult. <laughs> <laughs> but a couple of things uh, we, we can look at. For the last two years, in 15 and 16, you know, adult coloring books uh, was the big, right. was the big deal. I remember they were, talking about those. They were really big in 15. People thought they would really fade away in 16, but they, they stayed up there mm -hmm. and helped drive, uh, 
uh, adult nonfiction sales. But in 2017, as uh, one of our editors said, it's the year the crayons quit. <laughs> um, because uh, sales, uh, sales were not too good. And that's, uh, and that's reflected in some, some of the categories that we have and that we can measure. Um, for instance, sales of art, architecture, design, and photography, where a lot of coloring books uh, lived were down, sales were down 18%. Mm-hmm. And they were down 29% in craft, hobbies, and antique games. Again, big, uh, big coloring book section. Um, on the positive side, self-help, which was up uh, in 2016 or 2015, was up 18% again. Right. Um, but it also points to... Things that are included there are the subtle art, which we mentioned before, mm-hmm. and you are a badass. They were both, they're both in that category, so that helped give, give that a lift, a lift. One of the more interesting things is, is, you know, we've talked about digital eating into print and print coming back and, you know, the give and take of that. And adult fiction had been and has, it still is the segment where Ebooks have eaten into print sales the most, right. but we had a little bit of a turnaround. Um, we all know uh, romance is, you know, sales were down fourteen percent again in that category. But um, mystery detective, where sales have been down every year for at least the last four or five years in print, those sales are up eight percent. Mm. Oh, that's great! And another one where um, fantasy. Where you know had print had been going down and down, uh, they had a fourteen percent print increase. So that's pretty bad. Um, so hey, it could really be the signs of even some of the uh, the genres that have been most affected by pr- by ebooks uh, beginning to see see some return uh, right. to the print. I I feel like on the fantasy end. I see this less in romance, but on the fantasy end, I'm really seeing publishers put a lot of thought into the book as an object. Gorgeous cover art. Cover art is really big. And I see a lot of readers talk about cover art in very knowledgeable ways. There are books about science fiction, fantasy, art, and illustration that are coming out. It's something that uh, a lot of folks are thinking about. And although that does also appear when you download the ebook or what have you, there's really something to be said for for holding a, a lovely book in your hands. Right. I think uh, all publishers, I mean, I know they appreciated it before, but they appreciate it even more that, as you said, you know, making a book as an object that people want, you yeah, know, it's really important. I feel like important. production values have really gone up, uh, maybe as a response to that sense that ebooks are going to eat away at the, the print market. Uh, but it's, it's really, I feel like it's made a difference. And I've generally, I feel like I've generally, this is very anecdotal, heard people saying that they're sometimes a little tired of looking at a screen that they really want well they want to read on paper we like to say here we help coin the term digital fatigue yeah so uh i I think that i think digital fatigue is definitely a real thing yeah 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 yeah. i think that's all i have for you today that's quite a bit thank you all right mark (laughs) great recap (laughs) thank you nice to see you rose thank you it's nice to have you on the show and now a final word from our sponsors Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. 
Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 